0: As I'm setting up here the PowerPoint, I'm always amazed again by how Bob's Sunday School ties in to the sermon. And he was talking a lot today in the Sunday School about the need to be those who are about Scripture alone. Those who will tolerate what the Scriptures actually say. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, last time, so I've got to just adjust my screen here. Last time we were together in 2 Timothy, we had looked at the sufficiency of Scripture, how all Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful so that the man of God can be equipped for every good work. Now today in the passage we're covering, Paul is going to solemnly charge Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. And the irony is he's supposed to do that even though in these last days many people will not tolerate biblical preaching, but instead they will heap up for themselves teachers after their own desires who will tell them things that they want to hear. And so you and I are going to be confronted with the question that you see on the screen, what kind of teaching will we tolerate? And it's really binary. Are we going to tolerate teaching that really comes from the scriptures, that you and I would come into contact with what God has said through the biblical author, or will we heap up for ourselves teachers who will tell us what we want to hear, tickle our ears, and impress upon our own sensibilities the things that we want to hear and know? leading us to perdition. Those are really the two choices. Now, I want to begin today in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, where we're going to see four imperative commands that Paul gives. Then he's going to give another four commands when we get to verse 5. These are the final eight commands that Paul gives to Timothy uh, concerning at least theology and ministry. He'll have some other ones that are more personal later, but let's listen to what Paul says. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now notice here as Paul charges Timothy in front of many witnesses, this should bring to our minds that back in the Old Testament, Moses did much the same thing. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses before witnesses charged the Israelites to remain faithful to Yahweh. The witnesses that Moses charged the Israelites in front of was heaven and earth. But here, Paul ups the ante. His witnesses are God the Father and God the Son. In fact, notice in the red, I'll pull up my pointer. Notice he says, in the presence of God the Father and Christ Jesus. The term presence there in the Greek is enopion, which literally means before the face of. So Timothy is being charged before the face of God and of Christ Jesus the Son. Now notice here in red, Paul leaves off with Christ Jesus, and notice in the underline he says, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now the reason I put that underline up is it actually comes from a Greek participle from the verb mellow. I, I kind of like the term mellow Because mellow here in Greek means about to. So I remember it by saying, hey, just mellow out. I'm about to do it. Someone tells you to take out the garbage, say, hey, mellow out. I'm going to do that. I'm about to do it. Well, that's exactly what is to be rendered here, about to. And what that smacks of is the doctrine of imminence. You see, it's true certainly that Jesus will in the future come to judge the living and the dead. But this is more particular. It's that he's about to. It's about to break forth this judgment that is coming. And so who is he going to judge? Well, notice it's the living and the dead. Now, some scholars will claim to you in that phrase, "The living and the dead," we have a reference to the rapture. And they say that because in First Thessalonians 4:13 through16, remember, there's a reference to the dead in Christ, who will rise first and be with the Lord, but then we who are alive when the Lord returns will also be raised up and caught to meet the Lord in the air. Well, the problem with that is here, that was limiting Christ of being Lord and judge only of the believer. But rather, I think the living and the dead is a reference to all people. So there's two different ways we could take it. I think we could take it all the living are those who are believers who are alive spiritually, and all of the dead are those who are spiritually dead. Or we could take it all believers and unbelievers who are living and all unbelievers and believers who are dead. But either way, the point is it's all people. I think my head thing's coming off here. There we go. So that's the point. It's all people. It's not a reference just to believers alone. Now, notice he says, not only by the judging of the living and the dead, but also by his appearing and his kingdom. The term appearing there, epiphania, is a term that can either refer to the first coming of Christ... Or it can refer to the second coming of Christ. Well, how do we know? Well, the context tells us which it is. And we know, notice on the screen, because he's referring to judgment in the coming kingdom, it's the second coming that's being referred to. Now, I say that, remember some months ago, I talked about the term parousia. That's a term that's used only for Christ's second coming. But this is epiphaneia, and again, the context tells us which it is. This is the second coming, also the kingdom. So here's what I want you to think about for just a moment. Let's take a pause. Here Paul is charging Timothy in a very weighty way. He's charging him in the presence of the triune God, in the presence of God the Father and of the Son to preach the word. He's charging him in light of the certain judgment that Christ is going to bring to preach the word. He is charging him in light of Christ's certain imminent return to preach the word. And so I want you to notice as Paul charges Timothy, he's not doing so by beating, in, beating on him with some legalistic code or some lawgiver, but instead he appeals to the promises of God. And I think that should say something in our own ministry when we want people to do that which is godly and biblical what we should do is appeal to the promises of God. It doesn't help anyone just to beat on them with more to-do or legal codes, but rather give them the promises of God. Now, notice in verse 2, here we see what Timothy is to do. He's to preach the word. Do you see that in blue? The term preach there, keruso, means a proclamation. And some from that have said, well, this isn't really teaching, and teaching and preaching are different. No, preaching incorporates teaching. If there is a proclamation, there must also be an explanation. So teaching and preaching always go hand in hand. But what is Timothy to preach? Well, notice it's the word. And the reason it's to be the word is because the word, as we found out in 2 Timothy 3.17, can equip the person of God for how many good works? For every good work. For every one. We won't be missing anything if we're instructed in the scriptures. Now, to that, Paul says that he is to be ready The term ready there means literally persistently prepared. So that means the biblical pastor, an elder, has to be prepared in the word of God to know what it says and to convey it to others. Now, when he says that, here's a phrase that a lot of scholars debate about. Notice the phrase in season and out of season. There's been a lot of ink spilled about that. What does it mean? that he is to be persistently prepared to preach the word in season and out of season. Well, let me talk a little bit about these Greek terms because they're kind of unique to the culture of the day. The term here for in season is ukairos. If you were to transliterate that into English, it would be e-u-k-a-i-r-o-s. And it could be literally rendered not just in season, but I would render it more in the opportune time. Now, the other term, out of season is Kairos with the alpha privative K-A-I-R-O-S. And that would be rendered something at the inopportune time. And what it was an allusion to, I believe, is that philosophers in Paul's day, when they were in debate, they would wrestle with the opportune time to make a point versus the inopportune time. So let's take the inopportune time. Let's say you're in a debate and there's a lot of ruckus in the Colosseum that would be the inopportune time to make your point because it would be drowned out. Or perhaps the opportune time to make your point in a debate would be right after your opponent is silent so that people forget about what they say and they're immediately thinking about your point. But here's why Paul is saying it doesn't matter if it's the opportune time or the inopportune time. In other words, Timothy isn't to worry about that for two reasons. Number one, because Christ's coming to intervene to judge the enemies of God and to save his people finally and forever, it is at hand. It is about to break forth. It is an imminent proposition. There's no time to waste. And so if I could put this in our own vernacular, Timothy's to let it rip. Preach, don't worry about finding the opportune time or the opportune time. Don't worry about the inopportune time versus that. Just keep preaching. The second reason why Timothy doesn't have to worry like the philosophers did about the technical points of debate is because the gospel is what saves the powerful word of God, not the persuasive or cleverness of man's speech. Bob taught about that uh, to us just a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians where the cleverness of speech isn't what saves. It's always the power of God's word. And therefore, Timothy is just to teach it and let it go. Now, notice to this, he has three more imperatives. It's reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The reprove there comes from alenko, And that has to do with challenging people about their sin in both doctrine and deed and convicting them either publicly or privately. In fact, it was used in 1 Timothy 5.20... Well, remember, Paul said to Timothy that he may have to reprove elders in the presence of all, the same term that's used here, before the face of all in the church, if they continue to sin and teach false doctrine so that others would be afraid of sinning as well. Okay, So that reproving is, again, a negative thing where you're showing someone to be wrong. Rebuking is much the same. It comes from a term, epitamao, which means to strong and forcefully tell someone that they are wrong according to the scriptures. Now, we don't like that in our polite society today, but that's what's needed when people are in error, either in their doctrine or their deed. They are to be rebuked. A strong biblical rebuke isn't just to rebuke someone and tell them they're wrong, but it's to be restorative. And so that's where we see the third part. The third part is positive, the exhortation. The exhortation comes from a term para And How many here have ever heard of the paramilitary organization? Well, that would be a military organization that comes alongside the regular military, like your special forces. Or you have a parachute. If you jump out of an airplane, you may want to have that along your side or on your back. Well, para-kaleo, kaleo means to call to call one along one's side. And so have the picture of this exhortation of wrapping your arm around someone and ushering them in to the truth of what they are to believe and what they are to do through the scriptures. So if the first two are negative, telling them what they've done wrong and that they can't do that anymore biblically, the third one is telling them what they must do to do that which is right and pleasing before the Lord. And to this, notice Paul adds, Timothy was to do it with great patience. Why? Well, remember, we learned this in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. The reason why God's bondservant is to correct with gentleness and patience is because at the end of the day, God is the one who grants repentance. We can't beat someone into the kingdom or to change their views theologically, All we can do is patiently and lovingly give the truth. And God is the one who does the work. Now, to that he adds with great instruction. That brings us back to the word. The means of the exhortation, the means of the rebuke or the reproving is always the word of God. It's the word of God that changes people's lives. Now, as we go to verses 3 through 4, Paul explains why it is so urgent that Timothy is prepared To preach at the opportune time and the inopportune time. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, right at the beginning, I want you to notice in the box there, you have an explanatory for. So here's Paul explaining why Timothy is to keep preaching in season and out of season. He says, for, that's gar in the Greek, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, notice the term sound there is a term that we could render healthy. There's a time in the last days that are going to be characterized by the majority of people when they will not receive healthy, or sound doctrine. That's what characterizes the last days. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy 4.1. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4.1. And as you're turning again, this is 1 Timothy 4.1. The reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see the connection between 2 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 4. Because the connection between the two is about the last days, and people... Who would rather listen to the doctrines of demons than the truth? 1 Timothy 4, 1. Notice Paul says, but the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in the latter times, there's the last days that we're living in, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So notice in the last days, Paul is saying the same thing. They won't endow or endure sound doctrine. They want to hear the doctrines of that ultimately come from the demons. He's really saying the same thing here. In fact, you have a strong contrast of conjunction. He says, but wanting to have their ears tickled, what does it mean to have an ear tickled? Well, this is the idea. I think it's an idiomatic expression that says, sometimes if you have an itch, there's only a certain scratch that will do. And the idea is these people have the itching ear. The only scratch that will do is not those who tell the truth, but those who tell the air." And so that's why he says in the red, notice this is the key phrase today, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So they won't tolerate those who will tell them the truth from the scriptures, but they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. In fact, notice the term for desire is the term epithemia. In context, it has to do with evil desires that are prone to people who are dead sinners in Adam, these desires that are opposed to the divine will. And so it's endless. It may be not wanting to hear that Jesus is the only way. There's all sorts of different examples. In fact, I have a few of them for you to consider that I've just seen recently where people would rather hear what they want to hear rather than the truth. I came across someone recently that didn't want to sit under elders. And by the way, this wasn't an attack against us here at Gospel of Grace. This was at another church. But this person didn't want to sit under elders anymore. They were no longer going to go to the assembly in a church where there were pastors. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, it's not biblical. Paul says in Titus 1.5 that Titus was to appoint elders in every church. Well, if you have elders in every church and you don't want to sit under elders... Well, it's a good bet you're not going to be able to go to church then. Well, now you're forsaking the assembling together as some are prone to do that is prohibited in Hebrews 10, 25. You get yourself a problem. But see, they would rather have teachers who say, yeah, you don't need elders rather than listening to the Apostle Paul who says, oh, yes, you do. Think about this one. People don't like grace. And so they want to find teachers that will say, no, salvation isn't by faith alone and Christ alone. What you need is this code that came from Moses or this legalistic teacher who will tell you what you really have to do. That's what you need. Why? Because they would rather hear what they want to hear than the truth that comes from Scripture. I one time heard someone who said, well, I don't like the fact that Christ is going to bring wrath when he comes in his kingdom. The problem with that is Jesus Christ himself taught it. Yes, Jesus Christ and his apostles taught that he's bringing wrath the very wrath of God. So again, either we're going to accept what the Bible says or we're going to be those who heap up for ourselves teachers who will tell us what we want to hear. Now, notice in verse 4, after they heap up for themselves teachers after their own desires, notice they also will turn away, apostrefo, apostrefo, They turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And so, those who say, I will not hear what the scriptures say, but rather I want to hear teachers tell me what I want to hear, what they are doing is they are divorcing themselves from reality and the world as it truly is. Like the proverbial ostrich who sticks their head in the sand and pretends the world is different than it really is, that's what they're doing. Don't tell me that I'm under the wrath of God. Don't tell me that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. Don't tell me that I want to live in this other world of my own making. That's the idea of turning from the truth to myths. And all those who are engaged in false religion, they are not viewed by God as true seekers, but rather those who so hate the truth that they would rather live under the myth's of their own minds. That's what Paul's warning about now. As we come to verse 5, we come to Paul's final words for Timothy, final words in the sense of commands regarding the theology and ministry he is to be engaged in. Paul says this. There's four more commands. The first one, he says, "...but you be sober. In all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry." So now Paul is adding to the idea of preaching the word. Added to that are these other things that he has to do. First of all, he has to be sober. Now the term Napho there is used six times in the New Testament. And it doesn't refer to being sober rather than being drunk on alcohol. That Although that would be true. That's not the point that Paul's making. The term is often used in passages that have to do with the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And so what NAPHO means is to be a person who is in rational thought. In other words, you haven't lost rationality, but a person engaged in rational thought, informed by the Scriptures, so as not to be found wanting when Christ returns, which can happen at any moment. Let me say that again. What it means to be sober-minded means to be found in rational thought informed by the scriptures so as not to be found wanting when Christ imminently returns. Okay, so let me give you another text that will show you this. Uh, 1 Peter. Peter uses the term napho in a text that has to do with the imminent coming of the kingdom. Notice what he says, 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Notice that in blue, stop there. The term near, in ingitso, means it is at hand. So the question is, well, how near is the end of all things? Meaning the end of this age and the arrival of the kingdom. How near is it? Is it five seconds away, five minutes away, five months away, five years away, 500 years? You don't know. It is at hand. That's exactly what Paul said today in 2 Timothy 4.1, where Jesus Christ wasn't just going to come, he was about to come. To judge the living and the dead. It is at hand. And so what is he to do? He says, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, notice the term sound judgment. Oops, i got to pull up my pointer. Sound judgment and sober. That term sober there is nafo, the same term used here. But what I want you to see is what we have is something probably called a hendiatus. A hendiatis means you have one idea for, from two words. One idea from two words. The first word, sound judgment. Second word, sober, is really the same idea. They're synonymous. So to be sober-minded is to have sound judgment. And where does that come from? Does it come from listening to myths or false teachers? No, it comes from being grounded by the truths in Scripture. And so when you're sober-minded, it prepares you for the purpose of prayer. Why? Because prayer is where God will act real-time on our behalf as we approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need, as it says in Hebrews 4.16. Okay, so that's what it means to be sober-minded, grounded in the Scriptures, in all things. Notice he says, endure hardship. Why should he endure hardship? Well, Jesus Christ did. And if Jesus Christ suffered and the apostles suffer, yes, it is the lot in our life to probably suffer as well if God would appoint us to that if we're faithful to the gospel. Notice he's also to do the work of an evangelist. What was an evangelist in the New Testament period? Oftentimes when we think of an evangelist, we may have the unfortunate thought of the evangelist, the man who begs for money, ends up in some sort of adulterous relationship and builds a huge cathedral that looks magnificent. But that's not the evangelist, according to the scriptures. The evangelist is one who is dedicated to preaching the gospel. And in many contexts in the New Testament, these were men who, yes, they were itinerant preachers, but their goal was to help the church become solidified in sound teaching prior to new elders coming on. That was Timothy's role. Timothy was the right-hand man of Paul. And so Timothy was to ensure that the churches, whether it was Ephesus in First and 2 Timothy or Corinth, that they were solid in understanding the doctrines of the faith before they had new elders that would come along and perhaps goof it up. Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy would fulfill his role as an evangelist Preaching the gospel and grounding the church. That's the idea. Now, in so doing, he's going to fulfill his ministry. And this all brings us back to preaching the word. Preaching the word and being sober and doing all of these things is how Timothy is going to ultimately please God. And when it comes to the Christian, not just pastors and teachers, the ultimate goal in ministry is always what? Pleasing God. Pleasing the Lord Rather than men. Okay, now let's go into our applications. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, we should understand that the imminent return of Christ is a major motivator to live godly lives now, to live godly and sober lives, all because Christ could come at any moment. Number two, we must know that the Word of God correctly taught will transform us. So that's why we don't want to heap up teachers after our own desires. That's why we want to hear what the scriptures actually say. They will transform us. Turn us from the ugly caterpillar into the beautiful butterfly. That's what we want. Number three, we must be mindful of what teachings we are willing to tolerate. That's what I'll leave you with. Let's begin with number one. As Bob and I teach verse by verse through the scriptures, we want to bring to your mind common themes that you're going to see over and over and over. And one of them that I see in the scriptures time and time again is the doctrine of imminence. The idea that Christ can come forth for his kingdom at any, any moment. And it's something that we see all over the scriptures. Unfortunately, the doctrine of imminence has been lost in our day and age by and large. And it's been lost because sometimes people say, well, Christ must be right around the corner. After all, I looked at the headlines and look at how bad things are. We can, de- we can destroy the doctrine of imminence by saying that he must come within a certain time frame based on certain things that are going on now. But what we have to understand is that the doctrine of imminence means that Christ could break forth at any time from after his ascension to now. That the time from the asc- ascension of Christ to the kingdom is the last days. So says the writer of Hebrews. That in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Okay, so let's talk about where we see this in 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 1, Paul said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, notice in red, it says, who is to judge. And I said that was the Greek term mellow. It can be rendered, who is about to judge. That's how it should be rendered. That's the import of it. And you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, what if I told you that I'm going to the store? Well, you say, that's great, Eric. You're either going to go to the store five minutes from now or maybe you'll go tonight or tomorrow morning. Well, let's say I come into the room and I say, hey, I'm about to go to the store. When I add the about to, you say, hey, this guy's got his shoes on, his keys in his hand, he's ready. Make sure you get me a Dr. Pepper. You know, that's the idea. It's at hand. That's the idea of mellow. It's not just that Christ will come. It's that he's about to come. That's the idea. Okay, now i want to show you that it's not just me that sees this in this text. One of the greatest scholars we have today in evangelicalism on the pastoral epistles is a man named Phil Towner. He wrote the New International Commentary in the New Testament. And I want you to see what he says about this term mellow in Greek. He says, quote, To describe Christ Jesus as one who will, literally, this, these are his words. The only thing I did is highlight it red. Is about to judge the living and the dead. Is to draw on a traditional configuration. By which the early church conceived. Of the risen Christ role. What does he mean by that? The risen Christ's role is one who's coming imminently. In salvation for his people. But judgment on his enemies. Phil Towner continued. He says a sense of urgency. Imminence. And certainty is added to the picture by the characteristic futuristic about to. That's mellow. That occurs elsewhere in similar discussions of the coming eschaton. So what Phil Towner is saying is that term has to do with imminence. And I don't even know what Phil Towner's eschatology is. I have no idea. But what he's saying as an expert in the field of linguistics, grammar, syntax, and the languages is he's telling you this term means imminence. And so I think it behooves us to listen to these people and say, yes, this text is about imminence. Now, let me talk about what makes something an imminent event. There are two things that you need for an imminent event. Number one, you need an event that is certainly going to happen. Do we have that with the second coming of Christ? Yes. Why? Because God promised it. And God is a God who cannot lie. The second thing that we need for an event to be imminent is uncertainty as to when the event will occur. Do we have that with the second advent of Christ? Yes. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, he said, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. No one knows. You have no earthly idea when he's coming. That's the idea. So what makes the event imminent is it is certain to come, but you have no idea when it's coming. That's the idea. So don't think that imminence means it has to happen within a certain time frame and say, well, I'm giving up, it's been 2,000 years. No. Imminence doesn't mean it has to happen within any certain time frame. It simply means it is always at hand. It will happen for sure, and you have no idea when. That's what leads to the doctrine of imminence. And what's interesting is this term mellow, about to, is in a lot of texts that you and I can just gloss over at a cursory reading in the English text. For example, let me show you some other places where mellow comes in. Hebrews 1.14. writer of Hebrews here is talking about angels. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are about to inherit salvation? Mellow. It's just not that you will. That's for sure you will. It's about to. Why? Because it is at hand. It is the next event in God's redemptive calendar that Christ will break through the clouds to bring you home and give you a resurrected body. Let's turn to Hebrews 10, 27. Context, what's it about? Well, the fact that those who apostatize and turn away from the faith are in big trouble. What do they have to expect? He says nothing but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And now he cites from Isaiah 26, 11, the little apocalypse He says, and the fury of a fire, literally, which is about to consume the adversaries. Not just that will, but that's about to. It's about to break forth. Acts 17.31, Bob almost came to that passage today as he's doing a great job bringing us through the book of Acts. Here we have Acts 17.31, Paul at the Oropagos preaching to the Athenians. He says, because he has fixed a day in which he is about to judge... The world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It's about to break forth. Time and time in the scriptures, we have the doctrine of imminence. Philippians 4, 5, Paul says, Let your spirits be gentle among all men, for the Lord is near. How near? Five minutes away, five months away, five years away, five... We don't know. He's near. James 5, 9... Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing, what? Right at the door. So that's what Paul is doing in 2 Timothy 4.1. He's talking about this imminent return of Christ. That's why Timothy is to preach the word at the opportune time and even in the inopportune time. There is no time to waste. And this is why you and I are called to live sober lives. Lives that are what? That are lived not in irrational ways, turning to myths and false religions, but that rational lives grounded and informed by the scriptures so that we are not found wanting when Christ returns. That's the idea. That's the importance of the doctrine of imminence. It was the motivating factor for godly living here and now. Now, let's, do, let's go to number two here. And I want to talk about, again, the reason why Paul wanted Timothy to preach in season and out of season. That's because the Word of God is that which transforms the people of God. What do we need to be transformed so that you and I live godly lives pleasing to God? It's the Word of God, explained as the biblical writers had intended. Now, we see this idea, I think, really fully in Romans 12, 2, where Paul said, "...and do not be conformed to this world." But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, dear ones, notice we have two options. We can be conformed, or we can be transformed. If we're going to be conformed to this world, what that means is that you and I are going to be dedicated to myths You and I are going to think and act in ways that are displeasing to God. We're going to be found in our sins. And day after day, we are going to be storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's what it means to be conformed to this world. Storing up wrath day after day. Still in our sins, no forgiveness. But the alternative is to be transformed. The term is where we get a term for metamorphosis. The beautiful idea of going from the caterpillar to the butterfly. We're going to be transformed in our lives so that you and I are going to think differently than the world. You and I are going to be found in the faith. We're going to be found to be those who have the forgiveness of sins. We're going to be those who in doctrine and deed do the things that are pleasing to God. And instead of storing up wrath we're going to be storing up treasure day after day for an eternal kingdom. That's the difference. But dear ones, how are we transformed? It's by the renewing of the mind and that's only through Understanding the scriptures. And so there's only two different ways that we can go. Option one, you want to be conformed to this world. Reject the Bible. Reject what the Bible says. Say, I don't want to know it. Don't want to keep it. Don't want to follow it. You will be conformed to this world. And you will be storing up wrath for the day of wrath. But if you want to be transformed, option two, you're going to have to be people of the book. And I praise God for you. This church has been a church that has been a church of the book. As Tom said in his, his introduction here this morning in prayer, I praise God for you because you have been people who tolerate the truth. Keep doing that. Brothers and sisters, those are the only two options. You want to be conformed, get rid of the Bible. You want to be transformed. It's through understanding the scriptures. Now, that leads me to my final point. This begs the question then that I want to, leave you with is what kind of teaching are we going to tolerate then? What kind of teaching will we tolerate? Will we be like the unbelievers in Ephesus who said I won't tolerate that Apostle Paul I won't tolerate Timothy who tells me what Paul says but I'm going to find another teacher who will tell me that salvation is by abstaining from certain foods abstaining from marriage and going back to a legalistic code. They heaped up an teachers after their own desire. Now, here's the two options. The two options before us when we think about the teaching we will tolerate is, number one, we can tolerate a teaching that reflects the intent of the biblical author. That's the goal. What's the goal? To accept teaching that gets us into contact with the intent of the biblical author. Why? Because 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. The ultimate source of scripture isn't man, but it's God. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21 that men moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. That's what we want. We want to come into contact. Now, the other option is we will find teaching that reflects our own desires, our own ideology, and our own sentiments. That's the other option. Think about some years ago, Oprah Winfrey was on. She was on her television show. And I saw it, I think I saw it on YouTube years later. But she had a heretic on, Marianne Williamson. How many have ever heard of her? Well, Oprah Winfrey had heaped up for herself a teacher after her own desire. And I remember Oprah saying, There can't possibly be only one way to salvation. And yet, what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but by me. Oprah didn't like that. So she found a teacher who would tell her what she wanted to hear. Again, uh, Bob had mentioned today in Sunday school, there's people through years and years and years of study of the Scriptures, they don't like the doctrine of election. Let me throw this out there. If anyone doesn't like the doctrine of election, just ask yourself, is it biblically true? That's all we're asking Think about Ephesians 1.4. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And if you had to preach that before an auditorium of people, and you had to answer to God as to what that text says, I bet you'd come away with the idea that it means he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's what the text means. Think about this. There will be those who like some sort of pet sin in their life. One that often comes up now is the rainbow flag with homosexuality. They'll say, all are welcome here, except those who believe the Bible. That's the irony. Dear ones, in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the scriptures are very clear that homosexuality is a sin before God. Why? why is that important? Because we can heap up for ourselves teachers who will tell us things that we want to hear so that we can continue in our sin. Jesus talked about that in John 3.19 when he said, when the light came into the world, men loved their deeds of darkness rather than the light. Dear ones, you and I have to be those who will tolerate what the scriptures actually say. Let me give you a case study. I want to leave you with this. I uh, came across an example that I've been holding on for this very passage. I actually came across it three years ago. There was a message that was preached by a church in St. Paul it was preached out of Colossians 2, 14 through 15. It was in October of 2018. And I think it's a good example of what we don't want to do. Now, this church is a self-described progressive church. And oftentimes when I see progressive churches, what that really means is they are cultivating followers not of Jesus Christ, but rather of Karl Marx. And this church did not disappoint. They were doing the same thing. Now, when it comes to Colossians 2, 14 through 15, I'll give you a little quiz even before I put the text on the screen. Do you think it's about a polemic against capital punishment? Or do you think it's about Christ removing our sin debt? Well, of course, it's the latter. But the man who was preaching, he was a teacher who was heaped up by those who wanted to hear not Jesus Christ removing our sins once and for all, so that we can have salvation and eternal life. But instead, they wanted to lash out against those who teach what the scriptures teach, that capital punishment is ordained by God. By the way, where do we see capital punishment ordained by God? Genesis 9, 6, If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. That's the institution of government. But where do we see it reiterated under the new covenant? Keep this one in your back pocket. It comes up a lot. Romans thirteen four. Where Paul says regarding the government, they do not bear the sword in vain. Meaning they can use it. And they are designed by God to use it to restrain evil. That's capital punishment. And so this text that we're going to see, I want to show you how he distorted it. This is what Paul said. Paul said regarding God, he has destroyed what was against us. A certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to work backwards in this text. This man from St. Paul who had a bunch of progressives who wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, they understood the rulers and authorities as referring to governors, mayors, Presidents, people who are human in human governance here and now. But in reality, in Colossians, what are the rulers and authorities? It's the angelic, literally the demonic realm. Now, how do we know that? Because the demonic realm, they use, notice in red, these decrees that are opposed to us. The decrees there literally comes from dogma, dogma. It's the same term that Paul uses in Ephesians 2.15 when he says, there was a dividing wall, namely the Mosaic Law. So the angelic realm, the demons in particular, used the Mosaic Law against us. How did they use the Mosaic Law against us? Because you and I break the law of God. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is depicted as the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day before the Father. They're guilty. They broke your law. They broke your law. They broke your law. And you know what? They've got a point. We did break the law. We are sinners. But what's the great news in this passage? Notice in blue, he has taken it away by what? Nailing it to the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the the demons and Satan can rail all they want that you and I are lawbreakers, but the debt's been paid. That's the beauty of what this text is saying. But this congregation in St. Paul, Minnesota, on October 20 of 18, would rather hear that the government is evil if they engage in capital punishment. And that's what the man told them while he denigrated the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. By the way, when you hear any pastor or teacher say that the substitutionary atonement is only one theory among many, there is only two options. Either they are ignorant of the data, or number two, they are lying to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus, it says, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf who pair the preposition is substitution. He became the sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The substitutionary atonement isn't a theory. It is what the Bible teaches. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul taught here. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you. Are you going to follow after teachers who will tell you precisely what the text says and therefore live a transformed life, a sober life, a life that is grounded in rational thought, informed by the Scriptures, so you're not found wanting when Christ returns? Or will you heap up for yourselves teachers who will tell you what you want to hear? tickle your ears and they will adjust to your own pet sins and you can live a you can live a conformed life under the wrath of God awaiting for a certain judgment those are the only two options i know this congregation and i pray that you will continue to persevere and teach and, and listen to teachers who will lead you into the truth and by god god's grace we're going to have many more teachers In the years to come, who come from churches that will keep teaching and preaching the word, but I do thank God for the the ministers that we've had. I thank God for Bob and all the years he's taught the truth, and men like John MacArthur and so many others who have gone before us. I think of R.C. Sproul, who's gone on to be with the Lord. I thank God for men like that. Let us be those who will tolerate the men who lead us into the truth. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you've given us your word that you've given us apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. We thank you, Lord, that you have not given us just subjective feelings to know the way of salvation, but you've given us cold, sober truth. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and months to come that we would be those who tolerate only biblical teaching, that we wouldn't acquiesce to our own sinful desires. I also pray, Lord, that in the months to come and years ahead, whatever time we have left, that you would give us ample opportunity to proclaim your gospel to those around us, our family and friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. I do pray that you would regenerate their hearts before us so that you'd lead them to faith in your Son and the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.